everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast, where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Honor Balthazar. And today we have a, not the fullest slate of news, but certainly a, an episode that is, it has content in it. We're going to, from top to bottom, start with women's catsketball, then talk about the extension of head baseball coach Pete Hughes, talk about the first K-State official sporting event of the school year, and then talk finally a little bit about football and projections, and then, of course, the wacky segment of the week. But let's go ahead and dive straight into women's basketball news. Now, I'm not sure if any of you, I'm not sure if I've gone on record saying this, but the women's basketball team to me is frankly the most exciting team for me this year, other than football. It, it, okay, we'll just say it's second to football for a number of reasons. And they picked up another addition to their roster this year, and that is the transfer forward from LSU, Sarah Shamatsi, who is, you know, a really is just going to fill out the roster. Because I believe we were sitting at, it was 11 or 12, somewhere in there. So this just finally rounds out the roster. We have depth given, hopefully, Heavenly Greer recovers from being sent to the shadow realm by the NCAA. I really would like to see her. But what do you have? That'd be great. What do you have on Sarah Connor? Um, Not a ton, honestly, just because it was kind of like an obscure last second addition that just kind of randomly got announced by the basketball team so like i mean we have 30 percent three-point shooter for her career uh former juco transfer uh junior college national champion uh born in france um then yeah spent a little time at lsu had pretty pedestrian uh averages um at lsu did have i think a game or two where she really uh, showed up and had like really great performances. Yeah. But I mean, just not, not, not a ton uh, to really write home about from what we've been able to, to gather. Yeah. Um, I seem to remember point averages being pretty low. Um, like, like around the two ish range. Yeah. I think she was averaging something like 2.3 a game with 1.8 rebounds. But she yeah. also had one game where she was in for 15 minutes and went off for 19. It was either that or 19 minutes with 15. Yeah, I'm looking at her game log from last year. Last year, she didn't play a ton, uh, didn't do a whole lot. Then again, uh, Kim Mulkey's first year, so probably just didn't fit that system. <laughs> but yeah, you, you look through the... Uh, uh, game log from the year prior and you see uh, 15 points in 19 minutes against uh, UCF uh, 13 points in 21 minutes against Mississippi State uh, primarily a three-point shooter uh, took 3.7 shots a game 2.6 of them were three-point shots so you basically have somebody here coming off the bench and it's like okay three and D and that's about it but uh, last year, best performance was seven points in uh, 14 minutes against Alcorn State and only appeared in about a dozen games. So just not a very big sample size there. Uh, and then again, you know, yeah, 25% from three, but took maybe 23 point shots on the year. So not really a great sample to go off of there either. Uh, so yeah, career 1.5 points, 1.4 rebounds. Uh, but again, not a ton to go off of from LSU stats. Uh, does bring some nice height, uh, six foot two, kind of this like hybrid wing uh, spot where you know they can go back to the basket, but also play outside. Uh, hopefully, something similar to what Eliza Moppin will bring to the table um, as a freshman this season. Um, but I mean, I'm never going to complain about a power five. Uh, transfer in to route out the roster no not either and especially considering one of our biggest weaknesses last year was outside shooting yeah uh, uh, especially we especially for, yeah consistent was it oh con- for 22 at the ku game it was something like that um 
I don't remember exactly what it was. I've I've blocked a lot of that out of my mind mm-hmm. just because there was a, a lot of games like that last year where it's like if we had an average game shooting outside, then that's a victory for the mm-hmm. cats. A comfortable but, victory. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, just down the stretch, the offense really sputtered because we just weren't able to figure out what to do when Ayoko Lee got covered. But yeah, going back and looking at that KU game, we went one for 22. Laura Mackey hit the only three-point uh, make of the game. The starting lineup went 0 for 16 in that game. Not that we needed to relive it, but I have elected to do so anyways. It wasn't fun. But now we have an outside shooter on the depth chart. So not sure if that on the bench, sorry. I get my wires crossed a lot. But yeah, welcome to the team, Sarah. And now this actually might be a long discussion regarding the Batcats head coach, Pete Hughes, getting an extension to the 2026 and 2027 season. This is a, it was a hire that was already pretty contentious. And the extension has, we'll just say, made those divides even greater. Because I'll be honest, I haven't seen many people stepping up to defend Pete Hughes. I've seen maybe three or four people. And the rest of the K-State fan base who follows the Batcats are really sort of skeptical on the extension. If you didn't know, Pete Hughes got an extension to the 2026 and 2027 season at a starting salary of 535K per year, escalating to 635K to the final year on a gradual scale. So I know I'm I know my thoughts on it, and we'll talk about what we what we think it means for the program, but what was your initial reaction to seeing the extension? Um, for me, it was surprised. I was very surprised that uh, it was announced at this point. I figured if it was going to happen, it would have happened a few months ago. And I figured that since we hadn't heard anything yet, that it probably wasn't going to happen this year. And that it was more likely going to be something that, you know, we, we see this season kind of as a uh, make it or break it, for lack of a better term. But there's, I, I, I'm a little surprised uh, by this because if we go back through his history, there hasn't been a, a ton of improvement. I will grant that there has been marginal improvement from the era before he got here uh, because the last season of Brad Hill, we went 23 and 31 overall uh, five and 19 in conference, but really, really rough in conference uh, 13, 14 at home. So below 500 at home, nine and 15 away uh, 2019. He shows up. Uh, we increased that win total slightly uh, going 25 and 33, eight and 16 in conference, 14 and 12 at home, eight and 17 away. Uh, which fun fact his the most Pete Hughes has ever won uh, the the highest amount of away games he's won a season came in that first year. Uh, then 2020 kind of an asterisk. I don't really want to talk about 2020. Yeah. 2021 goes pretty well. Uh, 34 and 23, 10 and 14 in conference, 24 and seven at home, uh, but three and 12 away. We all know uh, the the uh, disparity between the home and away records with Pete Hughes where we're all aware of that issue. Um, but yeah, really kind of a promising season to build on that you lose a lot of guys at the end. And then this year just kind of fell flat on our faces. I feel like came out of the gate really poor. Oh, and five to start kind of go on a win streak towards the back half of non-conference and then just blow a lot of games that you shouldn't in conference play. Uh, can't get anything going on the road. And then, uh, you know, you, you generally hold serve at home. You go 21 and seven at home, but six and 17 away is not going to cut it, especially when I think they win one away game in Big 12 play. Uh, and that was a game at Oklahoma after we had already lost 14 to two and 22 to 10. And we ended up going 500 on the year 29, 29, eight and 16 in conference. So again, these records are better than what 
we had before he arrived, but I don't know if it's extension worthy stuff, at least on the field, because we, we know that off the field, Pete has significantly elevated uh, the recruiting status and the level of talent uh, at K-State. Uh, I mean, K-State's first ever first round pick. Uh, with P. Hughes and Jordan Wicks, who's doing really well in Double A right now. Eric Torres, uh, I believe he went undrafted or late draft pick, and he's killing it in Double A right now. Um, then uh, uh, several other guys got drafted. Dylan Phillips just got drafted. Dom Johnson, uh, Blake Adams just got drafted this year. Um, but I mean, yeah, P. Hughes, he's got a 98 and 92 record with K State, so just barely above. 500 and you're you're kind of sitting there like yeah it's it's fine but why the extension right now so yeah. what, what are your thoughts is i kind of talked for a while that that was no you pretty much said everything that i was thinking it's to me it came as as a shock just because not just because of the timing because it is it is kind of a weird time to announce a a head coach extension for the baseball team, especially when they've, you know, the last time we saw them was in the middle of June. But to me, the thing that surprised me most was that we, we talked about this on the show was that 2020, 23 was going to be the make or break year for Pete Hughes. Cause it was the last year's extension. And you and I were very pro, you know, We'll, we'll wait it out. We'll see what happens with this season because the performances that he's turned in on the road, a lot of times I would say are bordering on unacceptable and the propensity to lose games that we really shouldn't to let tournament hopes slip away. And just at the back end of the season, salvage, what was left by saying, Hey, we made it to the semifinals of the big 12 tournament. Yeah, that's nice. But we haven't made the NCAA tournament with Pete Hughes. And I'm not sure that we've, I mean, we were relatively close in 21. We were a bubble team, but then I feel like if you're going to give him an extension, especially one that goes to the 27 season, you would almost have to have more than what he's shown on the field. Now, maybe there's something we're not seeing. Maybe the recruits that are coming in and the prospects we have in the pipeline are really going to make an impact here. One, maybe the division three transfer who is division three player of the year. Maybe he is going to be someone that makes K-State an instant turnaround. And maybe Gene Taylor thought, Hey, this is probably the best chance that we have to lock up the second best recruiting coach in yeah, K-State, the first being Jeff Mitty. But I don't, I, I'm not going to say I hate it because I don't. I am skeptical. And you and I were talking earlier, I'm not going to steal your thunder on this, but you have a, you have a little theory about why the specific length that it is and also why now. And I think your theory makes a lot of sense. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to steal it from you. So go ahead. I mean, I think that, and I'm not alone in this. Uh, I, I think that a lot of the reason for it is recruiting based. Um, I think that it's really hard to uh, recruit when your job is quite literally on the line. So if I, I think there's a possibility, at least that this is optical, um, that this is something where Gene Taylor looks at it and says, we have a, a coach in a non-revenue sport that is getting about half a million dollars and uh, has at least demonstrably improved the record of the team since he's gotten here and was on the NCAA tournament bubble once and then had a down season this past year. So we, we do know that he's got a good recruiting class coming in. Um, and we, he did lose uh, one guy uh, to the draft, DeAndre Jones. Uh, he was taking around 17. He was a nine grade on perfect game. 
but everybody else, I believe, is still intact. And then, yeah, he gets a high-level transfer from Division Three somewhere in Wisconsin, I believe. But, I mean, there's some really, really great uh, prospects uh, in his class, which, again, we're used to P. Hughes having uh, some really good prospects. Again, some guys leave. Uh, all three of the starting pitchers are gone. Um, but alleged, ideally, Jackson Wentworth is going to be somebody in a perfect world, um, he comes back from injury. In a perfect world, yeah, Jackson Wentworth is going to be in the starting rotation this year. Um, you go through the uh, recruiting class and you see um, a guy like uh, Carson Quick, who uh, Carson Quick, who has a uh, a ten grade from Perfect Game. He's an outfielder slash right-handed pitcher, 6'3", 202 pounds, um, ninety-two fastball. Uh, really fast uh, as well. Uh, 93rd percentile speed uh, with a 98th percentile fastball. Uh, so, and then his outfield velo is 98th percentile as well. And his exit velo is 99th. So, I mean, a lot to really like there. And he'll be a true freshman this year. Um, Elgin Bennett, one of the fastest players in the entire country. 60-yard uh, sprint. 99.87th percentile. So it's 0.14 seconds to go 60 yards. One of the fastest guys in the country. You know, another weapon for P. Hughes to deploy there. Um, Mason Buss, 8.5 grade on here. Logan Doberstein, 8 grade. Jaden Lobliner is a 9 grade. So there's options in this recruiting class. And you go forward to the future. And you have to think if he does want a chance to succeed, he is going to need more high-level prospects, and it's going to be really hard to convince guys to come in and play when, you know, their coach may or may not be here, especially in the era of the transfer portal because, you know, you might be losing a lot of guys anyways. But going forward still, he's got a lot of really interesting prospects, but the big thing with him, I say all of this to – you know, provide a defense that maybe he doesn't even necessarily need or deserve, that at the end of the day, he still has to do something consistently with these guys. And we've seen constant flashes of P. Hughes teams doing something great. Yeah. Where in Arlington this past year, they they looked like a really good baseball team. And they looked like they took chances at well-calculated times and we're really going to do something special. Same thing the past year. And there's been series where they've looked really good. Uh, there's been times where they've looked great at home. Then they go and fall flat on their face on the road. And um, I I don't know what it is. If you're Gene Taylor, you have to be wondering that as well. So, again, this, this could also be Gene Taylor hedging his bets that, you know, he figures it out with road games. Because P. Hughes, if he does figure it out with road games, if he gets to, like, consistent 500 level, with road games, that's tournament team. That's a tournament team. This past year, six and seventeen away. If you change that to, oh, I don't know, ten and, and thirteen, ten and thirteen, um, then there's a there's a better shot there at, at the very least. Yeah, um, I, mean, I think if you go ten and thirteen, you're not the you're not one of the bottom seeds in the Big Twelve tournament. Mm-hmm. You make you're at least a bubble team if we have the exact same tournament run. It's just he he's not been able to figure it out on the road, and that's the big because Toyn Magic can only work on half the games of the year. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's really odd. Um, just how effective his teams have been at home, which granted a lot of his teams are built for Toynton because Toynton is a hitter's park. And he's put together power hitting teams that absolutely destroy baseballs. Uh, that they, they destroy mistake pitches. Basically, they're they're daring you to throw them a fastball in the zone. And most of the time, if you do that, you're going to regret it pretty quickly. That's why guys like Dylan Phillips had great careers here. That's why Nick Goodwin is an excellent masher of fastballs and really struggles against breaking balls because basically everybody on the team is being told to look for those. Pitches, unless you're a guy like Terrence Sperlin, who's like a contact specialist, but there, those are few and far between on P. Hughes teams. 
And pitching has been generally good with talent, but not very deep. So it's going to be interesting to see. And then again, a new pitching coach being brought in this year after uh, uh, Buck Taylor uh, left uh, this past offseason. So there's a lot of question marks around this team. And at the end of the day, if if he has a bad year this year, then it may not matter that he signed this long extension anyways. It, it may not. I, I'm not going to get too riled up about it because if he has a bad year this year, bad year next year, it'll probably be gone. But again, it could just be maybe a donor really likes him and is willing to put up the money for an extension. Um, maybe... Uh, Gene thinks that you know, this is the year and then he just had some bad breaks last year. I, I'm not sure what it is. I'm not super hyped about this extension, but maybe the buyout's low. <laughs> yeah, maybe the buyout's low. I'm willing to wait and see what happens. I am concerned, I think, is how I'd put it. I wouldn't have made this extension probably, but I can see a reality where it may have been necessary just to, if nothing else, continue to bring players into the program. But then again, you know, I'm not privy to those conversations. I don't really know what exactly it is that they were thinking when they uh, went through with this. I don't know what their their logic was. Um, but I don't know. Do you have anything else to add to it? Not really. I think that the this I still stand by this next season being a make it make or break season for him because he. You always talk about you lost a lot. And yes, he's bringing in a lot, but losing the all-time home run leader at K-State, that's never going to be easy. So I just, I'm skeptical of the extension. I still think that this is a make or break year for him. And that's really, that's the last I have to say on it. Yeah, I'm still with you on that. Um, I, I agree. I think that this is, this, this is the year I think that P. Hughes needs to show legitimate growth um, because we we were very close in 2021. I think a lot of people felt that we deserved that spot, but our RPI was just too low. Um, I, I felt like down the stretch, that 2021 team really found its stride. Uh, last year, kind of, but again, it's pretty iffy. Um, because down the stretch, it, it honestly felt like they lost steam until the Big 12 tournament. Yeah. Uh, because you know, they get swept by West Virginia in a couple of games where they were never in it. Uh, they lose on the road at Virginia Tech and a game where they truly did play well, but just didn't do enough. They did beat Baylor at home in some really great games. Um, they did drop a single game to KU, but when the other two uh beat Wichita State. Uh, and they get on the Big 12 tournament and perform really, really well. Uh, had some really clutch games, but it was it wasn't enough. Um, and overall, over the course of the season, there wasn't enough there to make me feel confident about the team going forward, especially losing all three starting pitchers, some relievers as well. Um, you lose Dylan Phillips. You got guys like a good one back, Halen Culpepper is huge uh, to yeah. get back. I think he's the future of the program. Uh, oh, I do too. Kalen is outstanding. He was making plays last year as a true freshman that most, that I don't think anybody else on the team could make uh, at third base. And he's a natural shortstop. Yeah. Um, Which, I, if you listen to those episodes, you know that that was a point of angst for me. <laughs> yes. He probably should have been playing short, but I get why we put him a third. Hopefully we found a third baseman to shift him over to short and then maybe put Goodwin at second or in the outfield. Um, But I don't know. Last year was just a really odd season. A lot of weird uh, decisions were being made at times. Like, oh, I I don't know. Uh, Like Cash Rugely, like he had a huge, huge arm and it felt like he wasn't really being used. No. Very much. I think he may have been hurt for a bit, but he didn't use him much. Uh, Jeff Heinrich, he also had a huge arm, and he was primarily defend, uh, or doesn't hit a hitter. Yep. And even then, he wasn't playing for a while. And then he just came in, and it turns out, oh, this guy's really good at hitting home runs. 
So weird coaching decisions. Yeah, weird coaching decisions. At times, it felt like from P. Hughes, but nevertheless, you cannot deny that the talent level has been elevated since he arrived. He's getting better players to Manhattan. The product on the field, while certainly more frustrating at times, is also more exciting at times. When P. Hughes teams are working, they are some of the most fun teams to watch in all of baseball because it's strikeout heavy pitching and home run heavy offense. And when it's working, it is a lot of fun to watch. But when it is not working, it cannot be more frustrating because it's just tons of because there's either tons of strikeouts uh, for the other team or tons of strikeouts for you. And what the, it could not be more different in terms of fan experience. But I don't know. At the end of the day, we'll we'll see what happens with P. Hughes. I'm not going to try and get too hung up on it just because it is a non-revenue sport. But I want to see the Batcats succeed. Because yeah. I like baseball. I like K-State baseball. Uh, I was kind of coming of age when they won that Big 12 title and then just fell off the face of the earth the next year despite having almost an identical team. <laughs> I will, for the life of me, never, ever understand what happened in between 2013 and 14, where we field basically the same team and go first to worst. I I, I just don't get it. I, I don't get it at all. I guess that's why I'm not it. <laughs> I guess that's why I'm not a college baseball manager, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Got anything else you want to say about that is I feel like we might've uh, wrong this dry. Yeah. I, I think we've, we've made our point and I feel like this is a point of discussion that we'll end up revisiting as soon as the bat cat preview comes out in like December. <laughs> so four months from now, but Moving on from that, we have the first official sport for K-State of this academic year, and that is the Soccer Cats. Now, unrelated to the first game, there were two exhibition games, one win, one loss. But unrelated to any games, the new video board's up. It's actually yeah. really nice. Yeah, they were saying on the broadcast is the third largest in Division One, which is a really interesting stat, I guess. Yeah, I... Uh, to have the third largest video board in Division One women's soccer, that's really great, I guess. That go us. Nothing wrong with it. It's just a. <laughs> it's, it, it's just, just odd. That's just an ESPN stat, is what it is. Yeah, you know, it, it's like those mm-hmm. Aflac trivia questions. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair, but it's uh, it, it looked nice on the uh, broadcast. It's very um, nice. It, it, it's something I felt like was lacking uh, the couple times that I've been to soccer games. I I never got to as many as I would have wished to, but a lot of it was because the few I was able to get to, the weather was terrible. Yep. Um, and then I also us being the the only two people was at like the Iowa State game, and it was like. 30 degrees out. It was, was windy. It Texas? Because I think it, it might have been us playing Texas. Oh, I think we went to both, but there was one game where we were the only two students there and it was like rainy. It was like sprinkling in 30 degrees. Oh, it was awful. So terrible. And we were the only two students there. It was really odd. Really strange feeling. Yeah. We didn't play well. Speaking of, we didn't play well either. Speaking <laughs> of Northwestern, which was the first game of the season, unfortunately, the Cats in general for all of their sports open up all their academic year with a loss against a, another fellow Midwestern Wildcat team and the former wacky segment of the week winner for Creator Rivalry, which was my rivalry, which is the Battle of the Plains Cats, Northwestern versus K-State. Unfortunately, K-State ended up falling short two to one to Northwestern. And we this was a game where we led one nil at half, and the first goal was at six minutes. So we I felt pretty okay. I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe this season won't won't be like last year because last year it felt like we were getting smoked in nearly every aspect of playing soccer. And then everything past minute like eight happened. And then we started getting smoked in everything that involves playing soccer. And it was horribly frustrating. <laughs> yeah, um, this was very frustrating to watch. Similar to a lot of the games last year. 
where, you know, you get an early goal off a set piece. Uh, you almost get another early goal off of another corner, I believe. Um, and you're feeling kind of good after that. Um, but, you know, you have the, the one lead going to half, but it was a shaky lead at best. Uh, Northwestern had seven shots to K-State's three uh, in the first half. K-State had to make five saves. Um, some of them were really, really close to going in. Uh, and then case it was fouling a lot more than Northwestern in the first half, a lot of uh, shirt tugging, uh, Brian Smoller pointed out. Um, but it was, it, it was just a, another game that felt like what we've seen a lot of the past few years from K-State soccer, where the defensive back line uh, is kind of struggling to keep the ball out of the box. And they're doing a good job of getting the ball to the midfield when they get the ball at their feet. Then the midfield really struggles to get it past them. And then even when the forwards do get it on a counterattack, they get chased down from behind by the other team's defensive back line, which is very frustrating to watch. Um, it, it, it was another game where the, the K-State soccer team kind of got out-athleted by everybody. Yeah. And now I'm not going to sit here and rag on them too hard because we hear time and time again about how hard it is to build a soccer program. But on the flip side of it, it has been uh, seven about seven, years. seven seasons. I mean, this team started in uh, 2016 with a limited schedule, um, but they're not, at least based off what we saw, they're not significantly improved, I would say. Um, there were some bright spots. Um, I, I think that you. Uh, that that you could point to, yeah. Wehrmeyer is um, still probably one of the yeah. best keepers in the Big Twelve. Yeah, yeah. Elena Wehrmeyer was really good. She had some great saves. Some of the uh, the second goal, there truly was just nothing she could have done. Yeah, it was just really poor and shoddy defensive work. Uh, the first goal was a another bad defensive play by uh, some of the defenders. Um, she did all she could. I felt like uh, she had some really great saves, some full extensions. Um, but beyond that, um, uh, freshman Jasmine Brown on the defensive line, I felt like she had a really good game. She was one of the more active defenders. She was getting down to the in, in the grass more. It felt like it felt like she was playing harder um, at times than some of the other people on the defense. Um, at least it looked like that. Um, she brought a lot of energy to the pitch. Uh, she did well, which was nice to see from somebody on the defensive back line. Cause I feel like that's been one of our weaknesses, uh, the last few years is a like cohesive defensive strategy. Yeah. Um, but then also the offensive strategy wasn't particularly great either. I felt like, uh, it seemed like we hell out of our own third. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. Midfield is really struggling to get the ball to the forwards. And even when the forwards did get it. It uh, didn't really seem like they had the, the speed or the ball skills to get beyond uh, any of the defense, which that's part of that's credit to Northwestern's defensive line. But also a lot of it is a recurring issue with uh, some of these teams where they're good shooters when the uh, lane is open, but they can't create their own shots most of the time. Not always. Uh, they're able to do it, but it's a kind of a struggle to get to that point. But even though we weren't putting up as many shots as Northwestern, we had eight shots. Only two of them were on target. Um, and then Northwestern at 18, 11 on target, similar stat line to what we saw last year. Um, Elena Wehrmeyer made nine saves. Um, Northwestern had three more corner kicks. K-State fouled four more times, nine to five. Um, just, I don't know, wasn't a particularly inspiring performance past the first 10 minutes. I felt like, I felt like after we had our first goal, we really sat back and we're letting them come to us way too much. And we allowed them to get momentum from that, build on it, and then turn it into two quick goals, including an incredible bicycle kick yeah, uh, that Northwestern put in. And at that point, I was like, this this match is done. I mean, yeah. like when they took the lead, it was well over, but I I wasn't feeling good after 10 minutes. I was like, they're going to score a goal. We're, we're not, I thought, I felt at the very least we were not winning based on how we looked. We got very complacent with our early goal. It felt like, yeah. Uh, it was disappointing. I was really hoping for a lot more. I mean, it's been uh, six or seven seasons at this point. 
and there hasn't been a ton of growth. Last year, they were excruciatingly close to making the uh, Big 12 tournament, uh, but then lost in the final week to Iowa State to end the season early. They've never made it to the Big 12 tournament, so it'd be huge to make it there, but they were the unanimous last place pick in the preseason poll, and they weren't particularly inspiring in their first outing. So I, I'm still not going to expect much from them. I want them to do more because I like soccer and I like K-State, so you know, I like combining those two things into something successful, but it's got to show me at this point uh, that it's really going to be good because I'm very skeptical. Yeah, I'm... I'm the same way. I all I'm really looking for is growth now. That's that's really all I want is just a degree of growth from the team. I want us to continue to improve from where we get from where we've been and it's just frustrating to not be able to collect that first Power 5 non-con victory in the program's history. Because I don't think it's going to come against Purdue. I, I really don't think it's going to come against Purdue. No, I, I agree. Um, because Purdue was uh, higher ranked in the Big Ten preseason. Um, and I I mean, Northwestern was, I think, what, like 11th in the Big Ten were- preseason? 10th or 11th out of 14 yeah, pretty low um so i mean i like that we're scheduling these teams but i mean it's really it's kind of sad that we haven't beat a power five non-conference opponent at this point i mean like after seven years we haven't gotten one i mean yeah there's draws but it, it's that's it, tough to see honestly um i'm I'm not as emotionally invested in this team as I once was. Um, I thought it was really cool that we were starting up a soccer team, but, you know, there's really not to be really substantial and unexpected improvement uh, over the course of this season to really put something together because right now it's not looking like it. It's looking like basically last year's team with maybe one or two other solid developmental pieces and uh and no brooklyn ends yeah no brooklyn ends yeah that's what i was looking for um and if you don't have a brooklyn ends that's going to make things tough which granted last year brooklyn ends made things tough in a different way uh just by you know being the one like really solid piece that we had uh teams knew what took away and it worked for the most part in the latter half of the year um but yeah well we'll see what the season brings uh, for K State soccer, there there's still a long way to go. Uh, they've got Northern Colorado uh, coming up. Uh, then they go on a little road trip down to uh, Texas, and then get Purdue at home. But I mean, yeah, they'll get KU at home later this season. Um, they get Oklahoma home, Oklahoma State at home. I mean, there could be some uh, fun matchups here. They should get a few wins at some point or another. Uh, there's probably at least one Big 12 win around here somewhere. Um, <laughs> that inspires so much confidence. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to be rude, but I mean, uh, I mean, last last season I think they won three. No, they won one, drew two last oh year, <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna. Back in back in 2020, they won three. Um, 2019, won one. 2018, zero. 17, one. And they didn't play any conference games in uh, uh, their first season, 2016. At least not any official. Um, so yeah, best conference record so far has been three and six. Um. So, I mean, shoot for that, I guess. I don't know. Uh, four and five. Shoot for four and five. I would like that. Um, but, I don't know, very frustrating uh, to not see much development at this point. I mean, we all knew it would take a while. But, I mean, it really, it's been seven years, eight years. It's been a while. 
Yeah. So love to see some progress this year, but we shall see. Yeah. So moving from one football to the other football, we can talk about how the excitement for college football has begun because ladies and gentlemen, this is the last week without college football of some kind. I know my roommate who is a Nebraska fan is nervously awaiting the Nebraska Northwestern game because even though Nebraska is 15 and a half point favorites, he still thinks they're going to lose. (laughs) Which is fair, honestly. Yeah. We actually had a discussion that he genuinely thinks Scott Frost might get left in Ireland if he loses. (laughs) I think that'd be funny. So it'd be very funny, but Let's talk, let's bring it back to K-State because one thing that we never did any projections on is a bunch of these statistical categories. So barring the obvious ones like passing yards, we're going to be going over who we think will lead in receptions, receiving yards, who will be second in rushing, who will lead in tackles, sacks, TFLs, and interceptions. So, like I said, this is just to lead up right into college football season because we are two weeks away from K-State kicking off against the South Dakota Coyotes. Or if you really want to make them mad, apparently the Coyotes. Or if you really, really, really want to make them mad, you can call them the Coyotes. But <laughs> but Who would look at that and say Coyotes? Someone, they just want to intentionally make them upset, I think. Oh, absolutely. that's why i said it but that we can start from the top we'll go ahead and say the passing yards later will be adrian martinez barring some catastrophic injury agreed yeah uh i i think that's a no-brainer no really no real reason to even really discuss it like you said it'd have to be a catastrophic terrible situation for it to not be adrian yeah so now the first one that is even slightly contentious and that is who will be K-State's 2022 leader in receptions? Now, this is one that you could actually go a couple of different directions for, and we'll do with a thing where we we trade off. So would you like to take first, or would you like to take second on this one? I'll go first here. Okay. Um, I thought about this for a little bit because Deuce Vaughn did lead the team in receptions last year, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I'm not sure if he's going to repeat that. Uh, just because I think Adrian Martinez will enjoy throwing to him, but I think Adrian Martinez is going to want to get a lot of receivers involved at the same time. So I'm going to go Philip Brooks here. Yeah, I think to me, the answer is either Deuce Vaughn or Philip Brooks, not because Malik, not because Malik, Cade, RJ aren't going to contribute, but because Philip Brooks has already made his name as a volume receiver and Deuce Vaughn is probably the best player on the offense. So I'll actually agree with you. I am going to go with Philip Brooks just because of how consistent he is as a third down target. And he's pretty much the only known consistent commodity in the receiver room because Cade even had his inconsistencies last year, looking mostly at the Oklahoma state game. And there are many words to describe Malik Knowles, such as a freak athlete and limitless potential, but consistent has not been one of them. So I'm going to go Philip Brooks for that one. In terms of receiving yards, this one actually might be slightly different because in terms of yards, I think that there's a lot more different names that you could come up with here because yes, Philip Brooks is going to lead in receptions and typically the receptions leader will lead in receiving yards. But I'm looking at who's supposed to be the home run threat here. And to me, the the obvious home run threat here is Malik Knowles. Looking specifically at how he did during the bowl game, not only getting the ball in his hands, but also what he was able to do after the catch. So in terms of who's going to lead in receiving yards, I'm actually going to go with Malik Knowles, which is changing up my hot take from the Bosco's Boys live show, because I realized like five minutes after I said it, wait, no, that's stupid. Um, receiving yards for me, uh, it's difficult. I don't think it's Philip Brooks. Um, even though I do think he, uh, led this past year, I think that, um, Philip gets utilized in a similar way as he did last year, which is, uh, the underneath, uh, drag route, uh, 
safety cushion guy um, with uh, some deep routes thrown in there to catch defenses off guard like he had against Iowa State yeah. uh, and TCU. Um, so receiving yards, I'm probably going to roll with uh, uh, Malik Knowles um, just because um, his uh, deep play ability, I think, is superior um, to uh, Phillip Brooks. Um, so I, I'm rolling with him where he'll kind of be more bang for your buck, um, sort of guy, kind of like Byron Pringle back in like 2016 and 17 for K state. He had a lot of, they, like he'd finish the season with like 35, 40 catches, but he'd be averaging like almost 20 yards per reception yeah. because he was just getting massive chunk gains every single time. Um, I think one year he actually led the country average yards per reception for a receiver with like more than like 10 catches. And so I'm going to roll Malik Knowles. Yeah. So we're matching on our first two. So who do you think is going to be second in rushing is the next question. And this one, it'd be different if it was just running backs, but I feel like in terms of just pure yardage, it's going to be Adrian Martinez. And it's not exclusively because I think he gets a lot of design runs. I think he does, but that's not exclusively why. It's just all he brings and how much of a dynamic athlete he is. I think he ends up second in rushing. And after you give your official answer, we'll change it to who is the second leading rushing and running back room. I was actually going to say Adrian as well because I was yeah. wanting to try. I was going to try and break away from what you were going to say because I thought that you might say Frias, but I was wrong. So we once again match here. Um, yeah. But. Yeah, basically same reasons as you. Uh, I think the staff is going to realize Adrian is just too dynamic. Um, I do think that they'll try and ease up on the amount of designed runs that he uh, ran compared to Nebraska. Um, probably four to five a game. That's kind of been the number I've rolled with. Yeah. Um, but then again, he'll have probably several passing plays a game where he is like scrambling out or is rolling out and just tucks it and picks up eight and because he's just that kind of quarterback he's an incredible athlete and he can do so much so yeah. I, I i i think it's adrian yeah but in terms of the running back room i think you and i actually may differ here because i think that Frias gets the majority of rb2 snaps at the beginning of the season but then i think dj giddens finally puts it together and we realize why he's been as hyped up as he is you're rolling with uh, Giddens for. I'm I'm rolling with Giddens for second in the running back room. See, I was going to do that too for the same reason. So, <laughs> unfortunately, we have a hive mind, uh, allegedly. So, yeah, I mean, I was going to say Giddens uh, for a similar reason. Um, I think Freeus will be really, really close. Yeah. Because um, I, I think that they're going to effectively be splitting carries for yeah. a majority of the year, save for maybe the first few games. But I just think that Giddens is a special talent based off everything that keeps leaking out about him. Yeah. And I, I think that he's the future of the running back room uh, long-term. So I, I see him as the number two running back, uh, if, not, if not by a huge margin. Yeah, because I, the, I don't think we've heard – we didn't even hear the amount of hype that Deuce is getting, like that Deuce got that DJ Giddens is getting. In yeah. fact, I think – in all the time that I've been paying attention, and well, at least that we've been doing the show, obviously the most hyped up player that we have yet to see produce is RJ Garcia, but DJ Gins is not too far behind him. And it's unprompted too. So he's good. We just got to figure out when he's going to put it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Felix from last offseason kind of seems similar because we yeah. were getting alarm bells. I know you and I were getting alarm bells about Felix like well in advance. Yeah. Uh, Deuce, it kind of seemed like people were expecting him to play some back in 2020, but I don't think anyone expected it to the degree that he did, and especially mm-hmm. as early as it was. Yeah. Um, but man, we were the first people on the Matlick train. We were. We were the first people on the Matlick train. We can hang our hat on that. Yeah. Best technical pass rusher on the team. Speaking of defense, this one's probably another one where we're going to match because there's almost an objectively correct answer. Who leads the team in tackles? I think it's Daniel Green. It's Daniel Green. Uh, there's there's no doubt in my mind, assuming that he doesn't get uh, injured. 
He doesn't get um, hurt and he doesn't get ejected every other game for targeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Important caveat. Um, I mean, Daniel Green, uh, he's phenomenal athlete. He was great last year. No reason to think he won't improve this year with a better defense around him even. Um, so, yeah, I think he's an easy pick. All right. So since that one's a bit too easy, who do you think ends up second on the team in tackles? See, that's a good question. I'm going to go with Kobe Savage. You're going to go Kobe Savage? You see, I think that it's probably going to be, I'm going to go Sean Robinson at that Sam linebacker position. Because when you're lined up as that strong side backer, you are in a position to make a lot of tackles, specifically a lot of tackles for loss. And I know that a lot of times the Sam linebacker is kind of seen as a, as a grifter, a kind of guy who's supposed to sift and force the run back into the middle linebacker. But on plays that that doesn't happen, I can see that Sean Rob, I can see Sean Robinson being a, a pretty good tackler. Yeah. So who's going to lead the team in sacks? Now this one might actually be my hottest take. And I'm waiting for this to be another hive mind moment where you and I have the exact same take. I think that Felix gets double teamed the majority of this year. I don't think it matters that much, but I think it slows him down just enough to where he ends up not leading the team in sacks. I think it's very close. In fact, I think that it'll end up being nine and a half for Felix and then something like 10 or 10 and a half for who I project to be the leading sack getter. And that is official Haggyville Alley Cats guy, Nate Matlick. Man, you gave the exact same reason that I was going to give for the same guy. Yeah, I'm not joking. I was sitting here looking at that one. I was like, I'll be able to differentiate, but I feel like, like I feel like our reasoning is exactly the same there. Where Felix down the line last year, he was getting double teamed a ton, and it was helping name Matlick a lot. And Matlick, I feel like, had a lot of times where he was really close to getting a sack, but mm-hmm. just didn't quite get there, or just barely missed, or like drugged the guy over the line of scrimmage. And like there was just something that caused him not to do it. And that was like redshirt freshman, redshirt sophomore problems. And uh, now that he's aged a year, uh, gotten stronger and everything, I think that this year could be a really, really big season uh, for both Felix and Nate Matlick. So, uh, but I'm going to say Nate Matlick because, yeah, like you said, Felix is going to uh, get the headlines. So he's going to be. Uh, probably double teamed a lot more. I think it's Nate Matlick that leads the team. I feel like that's, I feel like a lot of the K-State community is starting to kind of trend in the direction of expecting a down year for Felix. And I think a lot of that has to do with historically. Uh, it feels like K-State edge rushers, at least in my lifetime in defensive ends, uh, they'll follow up a really great season with kind of a dud. Uh, Ryan Mueller, he tied the single season sack record and then followed up his senior year with, I think like six sacks or something like that. Um, and I think that's kind of happened before a few other times, uh, Ian Campbell had a similar season in the mid two thousands. Um, so I think people might be mentally preparing themselves for Felix to just have a down year for that reason. But I mean, you never know. I'm still rolling with Nate, uh, because he he's our guy. Um, but we shall see. I don't feel like Felix will have a quote-unquote down year. I think that he still ends up with a, a nine-sack season. I think this defensive line's scary. Oh, yeah. It's it, The weirdest thing to think about is how Khalid Duke is the odd man out here. Edge yeah. rusher one from last year is the odd man out in this rotation. Yeah, that, that is going to be weird to get used to, uh, I feel like, because, I mean, think about the guys – that will play in different packages ahead of him at the beginning of the season. I mean, you have Felix, uh, Nate Matlick, then Jalen Pickle probably is too. Um, Eli Huggins at defensive tackle uh, is going to be there as well. Um, and then Sean might... Robinson playing the closest thing that he played last year, which was Sam. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who knows if maybe we see Khalid Duke rotate more with Sean Robinson than actually get down on the defensive line. And anytime he is there, it's probably going to be more of like a – two-point stance jet package where they uh, bring in like an additional defensive end to play the interior and just get all pass rushers on the field Um, just because there are a lot of pass rushing weapons on this team. So I don't know. 
Uh, it, it's weird to think about with Khalid do because I think going to last year, a lot of people thought he'd lead the team in sacks, which was he a might fair have guess. if he didn't get hurt. Yeah, it was a fair guess, honestly. Uh, but Adam Felix just blew up and had the season that he did. Yeah. All right. So who do you think? Oh wait, I go first this time. No. No, you guys my turn. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my who turn. leads the team in tackles for loss this year? This is a fun one um, because it is kind of subjective. I think it's going to be Felix. Actually, I think he gets a lot of TFLs, uh, just not as many sacks. Because last year he was a TFL machine in a lot of ways, uh, beyond just getting sacks. Um, there, there, there's probably other sleeper picks for this. Uh, I don't want to say any of them in case, like, I take your pick. <laughs> Yeah. Um, my, but, my pick's not a sleeper. It's probably the the second best or best answer, and you can make a debate for both. Yeah, but that's all I have to say about Felix for TFLs. What's your pick? My pick is Daniel Green because he led the team in TFLs last year, and this is a scheme that is specifically designed to get that middle linebacker either in a passing lane or getting them a TFL. So I really think that Daniel Green... This is where, even though he's quote unquote advanced in age, I think he's what 23, 24 when it comes to the draft. Around I think I, I think this is the year that he makes himself known as you know a legit option to to pick up in the NFL draft based off of his tackles and TFLs. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I feel like Daniel Green will be a day three pickup. Yeah, he is old, but you know what? That's all right because then ideally that means uh less time in the in the oven. Uh, for yeah. an NFL team. Yeah. And then you're getting more of his prime years on a cheap deal. Uh, granted, you don't have the longevity and you don't have that young star, but I mean, I don't think that's the type of player he'll be, but we'll see. Yeah. All right. And the last one that we're projecting is who will lead the team in interceptions. Now we don't have the returning interceptions leader from last year, which was Russ yeast. And you know, this is one that there are a couple of names that you could go for. Uh, you can't go with Echo because no one's going to throw at Echo. He was only thrown out, I think, 40 times last year. He was either 39 or 40 times in, you know, 13 games. That's that's ridiculous. Just no one throws his way. <laughs> but to me, I think the leader of interceptions is going to be Fiat. No, it's not. To me, I really, really want to say Drake Cheatham. I, in my heart of hearts, I really, really want to say Drake Cheatham, but having learned where he's going to play, which he, it sounds like he's going to play Jack now, which I'm really not sure how I feel about that. Not because I don't think he can do it, but because I think he's a better true free safety, but what do I know? Not a lot actually, but (laughs) Hmm. Who do I think? You know what? I'm going to go with, I know what your pick is going to be. And that wouldn't have been my pick anyway. But you know what? I'm actually going to go with, I'm going to go Julius. I'm going to go Julius Brantz. I think the Condor ends up picking off a few this year. I think that this is a team that has three or four people tied for the most picks on the team. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, you actually did take my pick, so you didn't know who I was going to pick, but I'm going to change mine because I'm tired of us having the same one. You're joking. I'm not joking. I was going to say Julius Brents, and I was sitting there when you were like, I know what you're going to pick, so I'm going to pick this guy instead. I, I thought was you like, were going to pick Kobe. Well, I'm going to pick him now because I, I don't want to match you again, but I'm rolling with, uh, please don't leave. And <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with Kobe. I know I said on the Bosco's Boys live show that I like my like obscure take was going to be the Kobe Savage. It's like exactly three interceptions. I kind of just said that because I needed to say something. Um, I see you and I both had that problem. Yeah. And I don't know. That could happen. And honestly, with this team, that could be enough because I think, like you said, there's going to be a lot of people with like a small amount of interceptions where we get a lot of guys of like one or two. Like Omar Daniels probably gets one. Uh, Echo probably finally gets one or two. Oh, uh, no, Echo's not going to get thrown at unless there's a screen pass that's going his way. Cheatham will probably get one or two. Uh, Josh Hayes might get one. TJ Smith will get a couple. Uh, I'll say Kobe gets three uh, just because he'll be a very active player. Um, 
maybe we'll catch a tip ball um, or something like that. Jalen Pickle leads the team in interceptions with nothing more than tip passes. I would allow it, actually. I would allow that. I don't think it'll happen, but I think that'd be funny. It'd be we'll very funny. Yeah, Kobe Savage is my pick. All right. So, yeah, that that pretty much wraps up the football excitement. And now we get to talk about the wacky segment of the week, which I know I say this on a lot of weeks, but this truly might this truly might be my favorite wacky segment of the week just because of the image it inspires in me. All right. So here's a question for you. Would you rather have the entirety of the student section of Bill Snyder family stadium dress up as Willie Wildcat or all of the players? And assuming that the Willie costume does not at all impede the ability of the players to play, which would you rather have? Um, even with the players not being impeded, I still think the student section is the answer here. Um, because we did discuss in uh pre show that the uh students it would be like a regular Willie yeah. where they can't speak, with the exception that they can do chants and yep. like synchronize things. So they I like the idea as a unit, yeah. I like the idea of a hive mind student section that. <laughs> Like just stand silently with their arms at their sides when like there isn't a chant to be said. Well, they look like NPCs. Yeah, like they're literally standing there like GTA characters waiting on a prompt. <laughs> like I, I, I think that'd be in, I, that'd be almost more intimidating than like a raucous noise or like hurled insults like for another team. Like just like just like this like section of automatons that <laughs> just stand there awaiting a command from their overlords. And like, who knows what they'll say? Because, you know, like they decided just like unilaterally to attack. <laughs> Who's going to stop them? This army of giant willies. The, they actually have the, the real willy wildcats on top of the press box, just like directing like an air traffic controller. <laughs> I think that would be very funny, which we need. A, speaking of, we need another like willy on the press box moment. I'm hoping... Uh-huh. It is my sincere hope that we like make it to Arlington and like clinch it the last week of the season. So Willie gets up on the press box after we like clinch the game. You realize that would mean we'd have to clinch it against KU, right? Yes. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> what's what's wrong with that? No, no, no. I I just for some reason Willie getting on top of the press box during a KU game kind of just seems off to me. I don't know. Oh, I mean, there's. It's not about them. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not about them. Trust me, it's not about them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because in the past, I th- I think he's only done it twice, and once was when we beat Nebraska, just because it was like a really like crazy game, yeah. and it was snowing, so he just got up there just spontaneously, and then the other one was when we won the Big Twelve in 2012. So uh, it's kind of reserved for special occasions, it seems. So. I don't know. I, I that, that's that's very that's very far off topic for yeah. this wacky segment. Not that it matters because it's the wacky matters. segment. But yeah, no one cares on, about like the on topic of the wacky segment, bro. <laughs> yeah. Now, what is uh your answer for the wacky segment? Oh, it's got to be the student section, almost exclusively because imagine if the chant breaks out. If the chant breaks out. If the chant breaks, you know what I'm talking about. Well, yeah, I know what you're talking about, but. <laughs> That I'm just imagining be, a sea of Willie's wabashing while the chant breaks out. That would be absolutely hilarious, I think. Like, I don't think there's no way like that it could be taken seriously. Like, it'd just be so funny. Not not as if it's already taken seriously, because it's not. It's but not. it it would just be very funny. And the players would still be funny. Like if they were all like spitting images of Willie, like with like <laughs> like helmet-sized Willie heads. <laughs> Like I, I that that would be really funny as well. Oh God, can you imagine how terrifying a Willie Felix Andy DK Yazama is, or how amazing it would be to see a Willie Deuce Vaughn? A Willie Deuce Vaughn, that'd be like that'd be kind of cute. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, I love these segments, but. <laughs>
Anyway, this pretty much wraps up this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to follow the show or contact the show, please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Aggieville A Cats. That's capital A, capital A, capital C, and Cats. If you want to email us, we're AggievilleAlleyCats at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on a more personal note, I am at ACEdward00. I am at Connor Balthazor, capital C, capital B. And if you want to support the show in a financial sense, you can always check out the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store, where you can find such designs as Play Sandstorm Cowards, Neon Alley Cats, and Doomtang Clan. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. We're come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alley Cats. <laughs>